This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Welcome to November. Do you remember November? I do. <laughs> I do you remember sleeping? I don't. Me neither. We cool. are having a bit of a month in the Overdue households. That's plural. Uh, and because we live in separate houses. Yes. For now. For our families. For yeah. now. Um, for now. And Until we start a weird book commune <laughs> in upstate New York Wait, somewhere. is the commune weird or are the books weird? All the above. Yeah. My that's, what I, that's my favorite test answer, all of the above. So <sighs> yeah. this week we are going to be talking about Jack Kerouac's On the Road. The format of the show, in case you need a reminder, is that one of us reads the book and the other person makes it through the episode asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> and helping the listener find their way uh, through the nonsense. We are like doing a partial Remember November this year where we read some books that we have maybe read before, uh, which is not normal. So I did read Jack Kerouac's On the Road um, my freshman year of college. Wow, really? Yeah, and... How much of that did you absorb? Not very like long much. term. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk about a couple of the scenes that I remember very distinctly, but it was as I recall, it was the one of the very first reading assignments in my American fiction class with noted author PF Kluga. And Ooh. I didn't really I wasn't really up to speed on what we were doing in that class and then we moved on rather quickly to some Philip Roth that I disliked way more than this book. So, uh <laughs> Andrew, you Craig. can drive and you can read, so you can probably tell me a little bit about the background on this book. I mean, a little <laughs> bit. I know about Jack Kerouac, okay, who was born in 1922 and died of, in 1969 of complications related to his lifelong drinking problem. Yeah, that's unfortunate. That's fun. Yeah. Um, his main deal was that he was part of this, he was part of this literary movement called the Beat Generation. Give me a beat. B-E-A-T, beat. Drop the beat. doing like a cheerleading, sort of. Oh, is that what that, I was being like a hip hop artist. Give me a beat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So the beat generation, they were really into dance music. Because you have a baby, and then you never, you never sleep, and the sleep that you do get is really bad and doesn't help. Yeah, it's just a raw deal. It so the like, beat generation. It sounds like you would identify with this generation of writers that did nothing but drink and take like Benzies the whole time. <laughs> um, it is to call it sort of a proto '60s counterculture movement. I don't think is wrong. Sure. I know that. Not all of its members really like approved of that movement. I think Kerouac had problems with it. Mm. But 
to read the like the top line description of it is it's a it's a movement focused on nonconformity, a rejection of materialism, uh, liberal drug use, uh, sexual liberation and exploration of Eastern religions. So you tell me if it sounds like it's a proto 60s <laughs> movement or not. Yeah, it that sounds right. And I could be I'm probably mistaken about this, but the. The vibe we're that, gonna say it anyway. Yeah, well, the vibe that this book gives off is a very male-centered beat generation, and from what I understand of the collective of authors, it was very male. Um, whereas I do think, in my like images of Woodstock and things like, because that was later in the '60s, that types of hippie stuff had a little bit more of like women centered in it well or, yeah you know? that 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 movement also picked up some other like civil rights stuff yes, and women's true, rights stuff like true. yeah i'm not i'm not saying everything all of the seeds for that movement were no no this, no no this beat generation seed envelope <laughs> but <laughs> did you find a good definition of what beat meant at all it was so of course it was sort of appropriated from black slang. Okay. Um I think the phrase like I'm beat to my socks. Whoa. Was the like the originating sort of thing. Um but it was about being kind of beaten down but then Kerouac sort of took it and and added a musical component, you know, like like hearing the beat or like having the beat. Sure, the it. It's, yeah. It, yeah, it's all over the place. I also um, saw things what that, did you get? that claimed that uh, it was a reference or at least resonant with the beatitude of Christ, like beautiful and, be, you know, that kind of thing, um, <laughs> which I think is like... I feel like that's a definition that you add after the fact yeah. to your thing well, like you maybe you you maybe have this thing that you already have and then you work backwards to a, sure. to a highfalutin definition Kerouac was a like he grew up catholic and you can kind of see that strain in this book a little bit and i'm i think it's in his other work a little bit more explicitly um him kind of wrestling with that and so it doesn't surprise me that he may have like later centered on that or attempted to explain a thing that he'd already been saying without really thinking about it by like delving into his personal history. Um, but yeah, it's got like three or four different definitions, it seems like. Uh, yeah. Um, so there were uh, some women and black writers associated with the beat movement. But of, but of course, like you, like you said, it was mostly focused on this like group of young white men mm-hmm. <laughs> who like many of many of them went to Columbia University together truth um it sort of sprung up like the literary parts of it sort of sprung up as a response to uh formalism which is a form of a uh, literary study where you mostly look at just the text in and of itself and its own like innate properties and you don't consider so much like the biography of the author or the like the social context for the work so it's not not how we do things here at overdue not at all we are not part of that form a formalist version of overdue would be weird and harder it would be harder i think it would be much more difficult 
uh, to do on as little sleep as we're making this podcast. <laughs> yes, jeez. Uh, some of the women involved in the movement who were, you know, they were poets. Some of them wrote like biographies after. Um, mm. Some of them uh, worked in movies. Many of them are still alive. Uh, Edie Parker, Joyce oh, Johnson, and sure. Carolyn Cassidy are all big ones. They all had uh, relationships with Kerouac. And some of them, I think Carolyn Cassidy in particular was a character in, in his works frequently. Sure. And then the black poets I found were uh, Bob Kaufman and Amiri Baraka, oh, who, was known Baraka. At the, yeah, okay. who was known at the time as Leroy, Leroy Jones. Yes. And that we can't get too far into the weeds on him, but what a, what a character that guy is. <laughs> Did you know that apparently he is the reason why there is no more poet laureate of New Jersey? Because he wrote a poem about how Israel knew about 9-11 before it happened and Whoa. there was no there was no legal way to remove him from the position so they just abolished it. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. Um, that <laughs> took a turn. I didn't know that that was part of his his bio sketch. Um, he's got yeah, he's 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 interesting. There I ended up going down a Wikipedia hole on him a little bit like <laughs> pulling that thread because it was so interesting cuz he's got he is very uh, respected and in very some circles, but, yeah, yeah. but also like that's phobic. Mm. Arguably, the nine eleven, the whole nine eleven thing is a big thing. It was, it's a mess. Yes, it's a big mess. Um, um, let's quickly do like an overview on Kerouac, and then like where the book came from, and then we gotta get into the book itself. I think do you got, do you I got, got a little that? bit, yeah, because Kerouac, most of what I have is the the beat adjacent yes. stuff, and then died of alcoholism. Yes, so he. Um, you know, as you said, he went to Columbia after receiving a football scholarship to Columbia, which is not a thing I think about people getting to Columbia University in New York City, but especially not like Jack Kerouac. No, <laughs> um, he was also in the Navy for like eight minutes. Yeah, yes, he yeah, um, he was discharged. Uh, but he broke his leg honorably. Yeah, he broke his leg a uh, very early in his football career, um, and then like dropped out of college the year after that. But he had met. Um, Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs, who are, you know, the core of the beat generation that we see in this story. Yeah. So Allen Ginsberg's book is Howl and then William S. Burroughs is Naked Lunch or in some editions, The Naked Lunch, which I think I like better for some reason. (laughs) Um, Kerouac's first novel was called Town and City, which is kind of about like coming from a small town and moving into the city and you know, huh. <laughs> uh, and then this was his second novel, which was based on a bunch of road trips he took with, uh, among others, his good friend Neil Cassidy. Um, and then there's like a whole legend around where this book came from, where like he, you know, had all these notes from his trip, and then he took a bunch of drugs and like wrote for three weeks straight on one big scroll that he like taped a bunch of pieces of pages together. Um, and then they didn't publish it for seven years because that's wild. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't know what publisher would accept that as a manuscript. Yes. And, you know, he was apparently not very happy with the editing process when he finally got someone to pick it up and publish it in 1957. I think someone published, might have been Viking, uh, published the original version of the scroll in 2007, like or the original text anyway, because what did happen was it was a Ramona Clef. So when he first wrote it, all of the names were the real people from the story. And mm-hmm. then he went in or his editor went in and convinced him to like change all of the names. Um, so this really is a book told from his point of view. 
about his friends and it just so happens that they have different names in this book and maybe some stuff was changed or embellished or whatnot Mm -hmm. um but i think you can read it as semi-autobiographical um in as much as something that like this heightened from a style perspective can be Mm-hmm. Um, it was made into a film in 2012 with Kristen Stewart and Kirsten Dunst in it, and some and some dudes I'd never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> was it good? I don't know. I have no idea. Was it well received? Um, what was it called? What's it, it was called, called on the road? on the road movie. <laughs> What's its tomato score? Give me I'm the tomatoes. Looking up, I'm looking it up right now. Um, 44 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Good. So, like, not great. I will say, though, that it did spur like a lot of helpful articles for me to read <laughs> about the book. So thanks to the movie for that, for the cottage industry of new on-the-road commentary. Hey, Elizabeth Moss is in it. Oh. Huh. Well, maybe it's better than we think. Maybe it's better than I don't know. I <laughs> say. I don't know if I'd say that. Uh, let's take a quick break, Andrew, and then I'll tell you about this book. Let's road trip to the break. Okay. I'm on the road to commerce. Craig, you know one of the most important things to pack when you're going on a road trip? Underpants. Yes. Also, teethbrush. Teethbrush? I guess you are brushing all your teeth with it. I need my teeth brush for this road trip, Andrew. I need my teeth brush for this road trip. Well, good news for you is everyone's favorite teeth brush, Quip, is one of our sponsors this week. Great. Can you tell me about why I should pack them on my trip? Yes, absolutely. All right. So Quip is an electric toothbrush that gives you sensitive vibrations and a built-in timer that guides gentle brushing for the dentist recommended two minutes. Every 30 seconds, a pulse emanates to let you know that you should switch to a different quadrant of your mouth and quip also automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule so you're never brushing your teeth with a ratty old gross toothbrush that's making things worse rather than better um, and when you're on the road, the good news is the sleek, intuitive design is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles Whoa. as a mirror mount that sounds great uh so what do you need to know about quip here's what is it starts at just $25 and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash overdue. Uh, that's your first refill free at getquip.com slash overdue. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash overdue quip. The good habits company. Andrew, after a long trip, what do you want to do most? I'll brush my teeth, like I said. Okay, after you've brushed your teeth, you're tired, it's been a long day of travel, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, get in bed. I do want to get in bed. That's what I want to do too. And I want to make sure that my bed is comfortable and good to be in. So I want to tell you about the good folks at Brooklinen who make really good sheets that don't cost too much money. You spend one third of your life in sheets, Andrew. Don't you want them to be insanely comfortable? I wish I spent a third of my life in sheets right now. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> and this holiday season, maybe it's time to get gifts for the ones you love uh, and have it be something a little cozier like bedding, loungewear, towels, sheets, and more. Brooklinen has you covered. I've been using my Brooklinen sheets. Uh, they are very, very comfortable, um, and they help me get a good night's sleep even when it is fewer hours than I would like. Um, I have new 
top sheets and a new duvet cover and a new uh, pillowcases and stuff. And it's really easy to mix and match what you want on their website. It's not that I hate more than a naked duvet. Just like cover that thing Just up. Cover you know? that thing up, cover right? Cover it up. Brooklyn wants and, to see that. Brooklyn has you covered as the first DTC bedding company, meaning they work directly with manufacturers and directly with consumers. No middlemen, just a great product and service. So, Andrew, if you like softness, if you like comfort, if you like essentials to help you relax, Brooklyn has it all. Uh, so you can get 10% off and free shipping anytime when you shop at brooklinen.com and use the promo code OVERDUE. Let me spell it out for you. B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code OVERDUE, 10% off. Be comfortable. Craig, we're back and we've reached what is my favorite point in every show based on a book that you read, which is the part where you talk more and I talk less. Sure. That is definitely how this is going to go. I could use your help with questions. Imagine that you are the listener at home and Mm -hmm. Craig is telling you a story and Mm -hmm. just like, you know, what's that about? Why do they do that? That, I think you can do it. All right. So something... One reason why I am not like thrilled to be doing this particular book in mm. the mental state that we are both in sure. is because it is kind of a generation defining book, both yes. by like the author's sort of intent and also by the intent of the entire literary community. <laughs> yes. And so what happens sometimes if we do one of those generation defining books or like a really big author that people have a lot of feelings about is we'll do like a bad one and then we'll get emails about it for years and years. Yeah, that's true. So I guess this is all a long winded way of saying what's, why is this generation defining? Like, what did you Mm. get out of it? I know you forwarded me a couple of reviews as well, like contemporary reviews. Yes. That were both responding to it in different ways so like was what's this what's important about this and why is it a big one well why is it a big one is a good question i think kerouac thought he was writing a big one which may be part of it and then yeah those early new york times reviews which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later one pretty positive and one like not so positive one just sort of puzzled yes i think i would say i would define its tone i think it's maybe the milstein one that is like really glowing and there's like stories about Kerouac, like waiting up late the night before to go out and get a newspaper copy. And it's like, this is the best book ever that's ever defined people of this age. All these people are disaffected by World War Two and they're trying to come to grips with the new reality. And they're not quite boomers and they're but they're not having boomers and they don't really know how to feel about the world. This guy wrote a book about it. And it's like pretty. I think it, I don't know if it's that review, but it is regarded similarly to how the sun also rises reacted to the lost yes. generation of the 1920s, uh, right? Just as more than yep. any other novel of the 20s, the sun also rises came to be regarded as the testament to, of the lost generation. So it seems certain that on the road will come to be known as that of the beat generation. There is otherwise no similarity between the two, technically and <laughs> philosophically. <laughs> Hemingway and Kerouac are, at the very least, a depression and a world war apart. Yes. So yeah, this is a big book that is in response 
it's not a big book. It's actually only like 300 pages. Um, but it is responding to big stuff that just happened in terms of the Second World War and coming to grips with what America might be now. It's kind of a hot take. The hot take of its time. It is a hot take in a way. Um, it is also about a certain strain, like a modern strain for its time of American individualism. It's in concert with... It's in conversation with that idea of like what it is to go out and discover the world and like I'm just going to run coast to coast just seeing stuff and isn't it just wild and crazy out here and man I didn't know nature could do this and isn't it cool to be in the back of a pickup truck and a dude tries to pee off the side because they didn't make a bathroom break and then the drivers of the truck like hit a bump on purpose so he pees on himself like that's (laughs) part of this book. Nice. Um, you really have to be careful about the wind, too, yes. because you could just, it, it, the bad things can happen. Yeah, you I can't guess, pee in the direction that you're driving. That's just bad form. Um, so the book, and, and then stylistically, it's, you know, you can feel that it was written in a stream of consciousness. Like it's this guy's experiences that he just downloaded into his brain and then hit go on the typewriter. Um, Obviously, with some revisions in the edition that I read, I did not read the 2007 original scroll edition. I read an old Penguin Classics edition. Um, (laughs) But you get a a feel for the style of language. You get a feel for the imagery that Kerouac is really well known for, his depictions of uh, jazz music and bop music that were new at the time. Um, are widely regarded and cited as as a part of the book's influence. Um, And yeah, it's just, it, it, I am struck by the fact that I don't really know much about any other Kerouac book. And yet I know that this one looms very large. So there's something singular about it, both in his canon and in like the wider canon. Um, Do you think that, do you think opening up a book knowing that like this is an important book and regardless of how I feel about it has always, it has already been regarded by culture as important. Does that affect how you totally approach the book or like how you synthesize whether you even like it or not (laughs) yeah totally i think we've encountered that on the show before especially with like things like infinite jest or my really negative reaction to gravity's rainbow that i think disappointed a lot of people (laughs) but um (laughs) i think with this one it helped that i'd read it before when i was in my in my youth when i was a, a lad of 18 or so um and was just like, okay, this is a book I have to read for class. And this time I was reading it with... <laughs> and now it's like, okay, this is a book I have to read for my podcast. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. And I think I went, I was able to go into it with a little bit of like, okay, why did this register with people at the time? Why does it, you know, did it inspire people in the decades since? And what don't I dig about it? Um, or what, as a reader in 2019, I could use less of is that beat lingo? Dig? Digging it? So I pulled up um, grammar.yourdictionary.com's list oh, of, I found this link of beat slang. Um, you know, I don't know if dig it. I guess dig it is from there. Yeah, if someone says they can dig it, they like it, it says. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, you know, uh, copping a bit, which is making up an act to trick someone. Mm-hmm. The big tickle? Mm-hmm. Which is to 
to laugh at someone? I'm unclear about that one. I don't really care for to laugh at their expense. At the big yes, tickle. yes. Okay. Um, I don't really. Not all of these are in this book. Um, even though, yes, there is a lot of like anti-police slang in this book. This book is very anti-cop in a way I did okay. not remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, the lingo is a big thing too. Uh, so let me just give you a sense of what the story is, and then you can ask me like how that stacks up to history, unless there's any other beat slang you want to talk about. I mean, I do. I want to talk both about the slang and about this article about the slang. <laughs> yeah, okay. Hit me with the slang is, real quick. It's just phrase like daddio, another word for the cool kids of this generation. <laughs> it's like not only are you describing deeply uncool language, but you're explaining it to me like we're both 75 years old. <laughs> Uh, cooking. If you're cooking, you're doing something well. Kicks, as in get your kicks. It's the thrill you get by doing something fun. Bad news. People who are up to no good. So this is before we had we had gotten to the 80s and sort of defined, we started using things to mean the opposite of what the words meant. Like bad meaning good. Yes, that is exactly when that happened. You're or right. sick meaning like good. <laughs> Yeah, that's how lang- all language just kind of really funneled down into a few <laughs> definitions in the 80s, yeah. huh? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so this book, uh, let me let me get back to the book in case anybody's like, they really, I really need them to get on the road with this yeah, one. Yeah, get on the road with me, please. Um, so this book is about Sal Paradise, um, who, which is the name that... You're telling me that's a made-up name? <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not at all. Um, he is a recently divorced young lad who is benefiting from the GI Bill, which is like you get little whispers of where the country is in the late 40s. And some of them are like, oh, an allusion to Truman or references to GI money and stuff like that. Um, so that's that's one of them. And he meets Dean uh, Moriarty, who is the analog for Neil Cassidy. Uh, not long after he splits up with his wife, he moves to New York and He's hanging out with a bunch of hip cats, um, and he meets Dean through his friend Carlo Marx, who I think is a reference to Allen Ginsberg. I believe that's Ginsberg. Um, and Dean Moriarty has this reputation as like a wild and crazy party guy who really hates Sherlock Holmes. He steals cars. He sleeps with everybody. Um, a few chapters into the book, he is like sitting cross-legged with Carlo Marx. Like they're sitting cross-legged on the floor, staring at each other, like being radically honest with each other, like talking through their drunken escapades with a like, here's what I meant when I said this to you and made you mad. And here's what I meant when I said this to you. And those parts of the book are part of the erasure of explicit homosexual relationships between these guys. It's like portrayed Mm -hmm. as kind of, I think the word that sometimes crops up is like homosocial, like male brotherhood and things that in this generation, in this group of people was like kind of blurring the lines between whether or not they were gay or straight. Um, And from what I could find, there's like some explicit erasure of that stuff in the editions of the book. And then also probably Kerouac self-censoring himself because he wasn't sure how he felt about it like because he loves this dude neil cassidy like they are mm-hmm. or dean moriarty rather oh, i'm gonna do that the whole time um, <laughs> but like he loves this dude and i think dean loves him back in a way and the book uses brotherhood a lot and it does not quite interrogate it much further than that but 
it is not hard to read this book with that in mind, especially with some of the text about Carlo and Dean's relationship. Um, but Dean, so let me tell you what Dean does a lot when he gets excited by stuff. He sweats he all the time. He sweats okay. and he stands right next to you while you're doing something cool. So this is like really early in the book. Dean Moriarty has decided to become friends with Sal Paradise because he wants to learn how to write. And so he comes over and watches Sal write books. And uh, he just, as far as my work was concerned, he said, go ahead. Everything you do is great. He watched over my shoulder as I wrote stories yelling, yes, that's right. Wow, man. And phew, and wiped his face with his handkerchief. Like he's just standing over his shoulder, just screaming at, how, at him while he types or something and just sweating all over him. He does this later in the book when they go to like jazz clubs and there's like a man playing a saxophone and Dean is just like sweating uncontrollably at how cool the saxophone is and like shoving his face into the guy's instrument, like just screaming like, you go, daddy-o. This is, I feel like they're describing you at a wedding. A little bit, right? It because is... you get really excited mm-hmm. for everybody and you're also so sweaty. I am always so sweaty at weddings. It's really <laughs> unbelievable. Um, so Sal and Dean are going to be friends. They've hit it off. Um, Carlo is still in the picture a little bit, uh, and Dean and Carlo set off West and they're like, Sal, meet us in Denver when you get there. Um, and so early in the book, you get the, I think the most concentrated dose of hitchhiking anecdotes where Sal like gets on a bus and he goes the wrong way. And then he runs out of money in Chicago or Pittsburgh or something. And then he just starts like hitchhiking and you'll usually get two or three paragraphs about whatever person he's met and how they make him think about the world uh whether or not they're a cool person or whether or not they talk a lot and then we get the section where he is on a pickup truck with a bunch of dudes from Oklahoma who run machinery back and forth from the west coast and every time they have to go back to the west coast the truck is empty so they just pick up like seasonal workers and give them a lift Mm -hmm. And that's when the dude pees all over himself because the Okies are pranksters. Um, (laughs) And so Sal gets to Denver and they have a bunch of parties with his friends in Denver. He meets Dean. Dean is from Denver and he has like a kind of troubled background with his family. His dad uh, was a severe alcoholic and like left them. And that I think dovetails a little bit with Kerouac's own personal biography, but I don't know much i don't know enough about neil cassidy's so that's that's an avenue for exploring this book is to like dig into the real people if if you sound interested if this sounds interesting to you um and so they party a bunch in denver they cavort and meet like women and go to operas and stuff and then they're like okay we're gonna go to san francisco see you later and like sal leaves for san francisco because he's got a summer to to not be in New York City. His uh, his mom is like, go have fun. Get out there. Don't get a real job. Just go away or something. Um, and Sal spent some time with his friend Remy Boncoeur in San That's Francisco. Um, Remy is another like 
mess of a friend of his who gets him into trouble and is like with this woman Leanne and he treats Leanne terribly but both of them don't like Leanne and that's where you really get introduced to the kind of latent sometimes latent sometimes explicit misogyny in the book where most Mm -hmm. of the women are like obstacles to these men discovering themselves like Leanne gets referred to as an untamed shrew who is just like stopping them from having a good time. Um, there's a woman, Galatia Dunkel, who is the wife of Ed Dunkel. I don't remember who Ed Dunkel stands in for. Um, I don't know that this character. That's a good name, though, Ed Dunkel. It is a pretty good I kinda name. I kind of want him to give me like a home loan <laughs> or a good like cup of coffee or something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he, I think it's Ann, Al Hinkle. So I think Ed Dunkel is an improvement on that name, to be perfectly honest. Um, everybody knows that's why you change the names in a book is to make the names better. Make the names a little bit names. better. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, we don't meet Galatia till about a third of the way through the book, but she is one of the few who like will call Dean Moriarty out in front of this group of of writers and partiers and be like, you're a mess. You leave people in your dust. Um, you don't actually want to commit to anyone, and it's terrible. And they're like, oh, how could you? Well, I don't want you to say that about my friend. And the book is a lot of Sal kind of wrestling with the reality of who Dean Moriarty is as like a destroyer of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um and whether or not he can listen to folks like Galatia. So yeah, it's I don't love how women are treated in the book and there are times where it feels like Kerouac knows it's bad and there and is trying to tell the reader that it's bad and there are times where it feels more like well this is just what we did. We were running around. It was the 40s. Um right. So he spends some time in San Francisco with his friend Remy uh they get like night watchman jobs and that's where you get some of the interesting, like I did not expect a meditation on how like cops are super bad because once you become a cop, you just only see it's like a every, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. A nail yeah. Um, and it's just interesting how that thread runs through this book because they are trying to be nonconformists. They are thinking of themselves as, you know, uh, different from what society and authority means um he spends some time with this woman named terry who uh i believe is uh mexican and her family is living outside of san francisco and he spends some time like picking grapes and picking cotton with them over the summer and it feels like a real relationship and then he he like tries to convince her to come to New York with him, and they both know that she's not going to do it, and then he leaves. And I kind of wish, I mean, this is based on real stuff, so like I kind of wish uh-huh. that he went back to her, but clearly that just didn't happen. Like there's right. no like it doesn't circle back to that later, but it is very um, the imagery is something in that passage that I like in that whole section of the book is something I remember from reading it over ten years ago. Um, just because it felt like a real honest connection between people, even as it's very hard while they're doing this like menial seasonal labor and feels very different from who he is as someone who runs from jazz club to jazz club, like partying and writing poetry and stuff. Well, does it, I don't know. Does it feel like he was really earnestly like asking her if he'd 
didn't expect her to come and there was like no chance that he wasn't going to go or was he just trying to make himself feel better or what's the, I don't know. Maybe I'm grabbing on. No, it's stuff. probably all of the above, right? It's probably, there's a lot of like, Hey, we'll do this thing in this book of like, Oh, and then we'll, we'll make a better life in the next few months. We'll go there and the world will be better for some reason. If we just get back to San Francisco or get back to New York city, like they go back, they go coast to coast in this book multiple times as if it's going to fix something about themselves. And I, I guess the the fut- the potential futility of that is part of the book, or maybe it's not futile, but you have to go through all of these f- falsehoods or these like mm-hmm. false promises to get there. Okay. Um, Dean is the king of that. He'll because he has multiple relationships that he juggles throughout the book. Um, this woman, Camille, who he ends up returning to at the end of the book has multiple kids with her there's a woman named mary lou who he leaves camille for multiple times uh at one point in the book dean is like he's arranging to have mary lou a few blocks away from his house with camille so that he can swing by their place like when he's on break from work and you know be with her instead of being with his wife um i think he tries to marry mary lou at least once or twice and that that falls apart every time Later in the book, he is with this woman, Inez, in New York City. That falls apart. And the whole time, Sal is just like, I love you, Dean, but why are you such a mess? I will follow you everywhere. Or you Mm -hmm. will just show up when I write you a letter saying, come here in three weeks. And he shows up the next day. So is there like a like an element of wanderlustiness to the the being on the road? Is there a sense of running away from problems or is it more just like uh i'm not happy here so the problem is definitely the location and not me <laughs> um it's it's a it's wanderlusty it is maybe it will be better over there and not always because it's explicitly bad i think sal feels lost when he's in new york city when he's not writing, we kind of really gloss over his like success as a writer where he's just like creating novels and getting paid for it. And then he'll reach a point where he just kind of needs to get out there uh, and he'll go find Dean or Dean will show up, you know, in the midway through the book, um, Sal is like helping his brother move to or from Virginia. I don't remember. And Dean just like rolls up, to the house like around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And then like they just have to deal with the fact that Dean's in town. I don't have an analog for that person in my life who's just like busts down the door on the city you live in and is just like, I'm here for three weeks. Let's go. Mm-hmm. But it is a it is a particular character where he does like kind of Cosmo Kramer into Sal's life multiple times. Um and just completely derails whatever Sal thought he was going to do. And yeah, there is a sense of like, okay, Dean is always running from something. I think Sal is always running to something. I think. Deep. Yeah, I think that's That's right. That's a deep thing you said. Um, And sometimes it's to and from each other. And sometimes Dean is like, well, I'm running out of steam in this romantic relationship that I'm in because I really can't hack it. So I'm going to just show up on Sal's doorstep and take him off on an adventure. Um, They go back to San Francisco by way of New Orleans, where they hang out with a dude named Old Bull Lee, 
who I believe is the stand-in for William S. Burroughs. Okay, because I was, are you sure he's not a Civil War general? No. <laughs> uh, and he is like severely morphine addicted and kind of sounds a little conspiratorial at times. He talks about how the capitalist machine makes things obsolete so that we have to buy new ones. And Is that conspiratorial, well, though? the way he says it is kind of conspiratorial okay let me see if i can find the passage real quick do you want me time no i got it um americans are killing themselves by the millions every year with defective rubber tires that get hot on the road and blow up they could make tires that never blow up same with tooth powder there's a certain gum they've invented they won't show it to anybody that if you chew it as a kid you'll never get a cavity for the rest of your born days same with clothes they can make clothes that last forever they prefer making cheap goods so everybody have to go on working and punching time clocks and organizing themselves in sullen unions and floundering around while the big grab goes on in washington and moscow yeah, I guess that sounds conspiratorial. <laughs> it takes... it gets, it's close to it's close to identifying a problem. Yes. And he's talking about that while he is like showing off this shelf that he built himself. So I think this visit to Old Bull Lee, which is a, a singular chapter in the book, they don't revisit him later um, down in New Orleans. This does entertain some of the like mid 20th century like okay, the Industrial Revolution has been around for a while and now it's starting to become big corporations rather than just like big robber barons and we're starting to have these like global superpowers and what does that mean for me, the dude high on morphine in my house building stuff? Like how do I relate to that? Um, Mm -hmm. So while the other characters aren't quite dealing with the same level of analysis of like big systems that are bugging them, there is an awareness of it that runs through the book. Um, so they go through New Orleans, they go back to San Francisco. This is when Dean and Camille are in a very bad way. Uh, Dean and Mary Lou have broken up. He literally, so Dean hits Mary Lou at one point and infects his thumb with the injury that he created. He like broke his thumb and then like his thumb gets, you know, he has to have surgery on his infected thumb, which to me in a hitchhiking novel felt a little on the nose. (laughs) Right. Um, but it's one of the like most explicitly like bad things that we see Dean do um, in terms of abuse. Most of it is more emotional abuse throughout the book. Um, Subtler, sort of. Yes, it's more subtle. Yeah. Um, and so he he's at rock bottom. He convinces Sal to take him back, drive across the country to New York City. Maybe they'll stop along the way and deal with Dean's you know father issues. Maybe they'll find his dad. Um, who left him when he was really young. Um, they get a car. This is a thing that like time dates the book, I think. They get a car in Denver from a service where like, hey, I own this car and need it to be driven to Chicago. Uh-huh. Let me just get these random dudes to drive it there for me. Mm-hmm. I don't, is that a thing that you could do today? I I think probably like, I don't know. Shipping a car is pretty expensive. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know. It's I don't like. I feel like there'd be a bigger business around it. This is like they left it at a station and then like Dean basically smooth talks his way into this job. Well, because I don't like I feel like American society is still very car centric. Right. But like nowadays, I feel like the people making big 
like interstate sort of moves mm-hmm. would not i don't know they would people, not do people that who need people who need cars to get around aren't the people who are like moving to cities or like moving a million years away from where they live right now i don't know i'm just kind of like trying to intuit why mm. this maybe isn't a thing anymore <laughs> google how to get a car from <laughs> One place to, to another. another. Drive it. That's Which is it. a bad Google, really. <laughs> How to move a car to another state. Yeah, sure. Moving.com. Okay. Uh, hitch it to your moving truck with a tow dolly or car carrier. Yep. Use a professional auto transporter. Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of what this is, except... You pay to have your car loaded onto a large open air or oh, enclosed truck bed. That's Hire different. a professional to drive it for you. Yes. If you don't mind putting the miles on your car, you can hire a professional driver to make the trip for you. Professional driving companies, sometimes called concierge transportation companies, offer a range of services, including moving cars to other states. So this is still a thing. Okay. This, this feels um, way more... A lot of them will even take your pet along for the ride, too. Dean would not... It's kind of a nice value add. Dean would not have been certified by Uber, let me say that. He drives way too... I don't too... think Uber's doing this. <laughs> he, well, no, but even then, like he drives very recklessly. He is always like... They are always scamming to get gas money and and stealing bread from ga- gas stations because they don't have any money. So, like, they do this trip from Denver to Chicago in, like, a day at most because um, he just drives 100 miles an hour the whole time. They, like, get into a fender bender. He rolls it off the road at one point, and they still get it to Chicago and then, like, get it. they just drop it off and leave. Um, and don't get in any real trouble, which is kind of amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they head to New York City. They make it to Long Island, and there's like this sweet moment where they're standing on the beach together. They've run out of land to traverse because their friendship is really like this is the most concentrated amount of time we see them together. And they're just standing looking out the Atlantic Ocean like, hey, we made it after all. And they... They literally, they clasp hands and agreed to be friends forever, which is really sweet. That sounds nice. But they are both just kind of messes, <laughs> so they definitely yeah. need each other. Um, and then the last big trip is this big trip to Mexico that Sal just wants to go. Um, I guess for, like, writing purposes, they come up with a reason to, like, get inspired by going to Mexico City. And Dean just shows up and is like, I'm coming too. And so is this guy Stan that's kind of our friend. And the three of them set off. And they love Mexico. They party in a big bordello. Um, there's a lot of like, for lack of a better word, Columbusing happening in this book where... Okay, just, just explain to me what you mean by that. I mean that, so like this is of a piece with how they experience jazz clubs in the book where they are like... Like, you'd, like they show up to it and they feel like they've discovered it even though clearly it's yes. existed for a while already? Yes. Okay. So there's a bit of like, oh, we go into this jazz club and like, oh my God, people are really living this way. It's so wild and it's inspiring because it's so different from my boring, unsatisfying experience, which is not a, an invalid feeling. Um it just feels particularly weird when they're like in Mexico and being like, here are people who've, you know, lived here for centuries and they don't even, you know, my my car must not be a thing they see every day. And isn't that rad? Like, what would it be like to live like that? And it just does like, I think Kerouac is both investigating what potential harm those feelings can cause because none of these guys are perfect. 
Um, but it also seems like a, an experience that he just straight up had uh, mm-hmm. and is and giving voice to through Sal and Dean and I guess this guy Stan. Um, Sal gets dysentery in Mexico and <laughs> and Dean just leaves. Dean's like, all right, I got a, I got my Mexican divorce papers signed. See you later, bud. Uh, and Sal has this really clarifying moment of like, wow, Dean does suck. I love this guy, but boy, howdy. He is really terrible. Um, I think there are a lot of friends who you sort of feel that way about after yes. you spend a few days with them. Well, and but you still lo- you still love them, but... <laughs> Well, in a few days that end with you in a different a hospital in a different country, and the guy is just like, "See you later." Got to go back to one of my three failed marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it ends with them briefly attempting to reconnect in New York City. Dean has really been humbled. He has finally settled down with Camille. Um, and this this whole section, so Dean will go on rants throughout this book, page-long rants talking about the world and talking about what jazz music is like and talking about how to live better and faster and stronger and harder. And love those trademark Dean rants. You know, after this book came out, everybody was in the clubs just doing these big Dean rants. Mm-hmm. It was this great movement <laughs> the, of ranters. The Dean rant movement? Yeah. It's what's kicked off the blogosphere. It's just a bunch of people doing Dean rants. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you remember. None of us had jobs due to the financial collapse, so we just did Dean rants all the time. Just did Dean rants online Um, and tried to get book deals. And the thing about Dean rants is that at the end of the book, he can't, like, one of, he literally, Sal says at one point, like, Dean couldn't talk anymore. Like, he is so, for lack of, all ranted out. He's ranted out. He's broken. He is, for lack of a better word, domesticated in the context of the book the closest he gets in like one of the last pages is a lot of his his words are hyphenated and stuttery and he's kind of lost his gifts quote unquote let's say um and they it ends with sal driving away from dean after he's supposed to go to a concert with his friend remy and dean's like hey could i just like bum a ride with you and remy's like no you cannot and then they just leave him and it is kind of sad because it's it's a recognition of like here's this person I really care about, but they do not fit in our lives. Do not fit together. We cannot. We cannot. Like it just doesn't work. Um, sure. So that's like there's a lot that happens that I didn't talk about, um, but that's the arc of like the back and forth of the travel. Um, we kind of alluded to some of the lingo that happens. In the book, they use the word gone a lot. Like, you're a gone girl or the gonest girl. And I, gone girl is a different thing. Well, now, maybe, maybe gone girl they changed is, it. Well, it is now. Maybe that was a play on, like, oh, she's so gone, which means I think is a good thing. Like, she's kind of mysterious and cool. I don't know. Did you read Gone Girl? No, it was, she was just gone. I, I know there was what no. it means now. I mean, in the context <laughs> of the book. Uh-huh. Um, but again, that's all kind of <laughs> run through these these men just kind of picking up and discarding women a lot throughout the book. Um, and then the couple of women that like push back against it. Um, and they're really the only people who sound the alarm on Dean. Most of the men are like, wow, this guy's cool. Cool as hell. Um, yeah, that's my reaction to Dean most of the time. Yeah, Dean. There's okay, There's like a... 
the prevailing, Dean, come on, Dean. The prevailing sense of, I think, Sal's fascination with Dean is like it's a dangerous romanticism. Like, man, this guy is just, he's unpredictable. He's out of control. What would it be to live like that? Why does he live like that? And it is rooted in personal tragedy. And I, I think that gets to the generational defining aspects of the book where, you know, we're entering an era where, you know, folks are like, oh, this is the way, this is why I am the way that I am. And I don't know how to reconcile that with the new society that's blooming. Um, and Sal is like alternately wanting to be as cool as Dean and doing Dean things and also just really cannot handle it. Um, one of the reasons that the book, I think, has, you know, certainly caught people's eye um is some of its just the the strength of its language at times. Let me I have a couple things I'll just read to you and one um is a description of jazz which is kind of wild. Um the music uh the music picked up. The bass player hunched over and socked it in faster and faster. It seemed faster and faster. That's all. Shearing began to play his chords. They rolled out of the piano in great rich showers. You'd think the man wouldn't have time to line them up. They rolled and rolled like the sea. Folks yelled for him to go. Dean was sweating. The sweat poured down his collar. There he is. That's him. Old oh God, old oh God, Shearing. Yes, yes, yes. And Shearing was conscious of the madman behind him. He could hear every one of Dean's gasps and imprecations. He could sense it, though he could see that's right dean said yes shearing smiled he rocked shearing rose from the piano dripping with sweat these were his great 1949 days before he became cool and commercial so there's before he sold out yeah so you can get a sense even in the rhythm of that that's a lot of what the really active language sounds like there's a lot of just quick clauses that attempt to convey speed um it's not always like clear exactly what he means but you get the vibe of it mm-hmm. um and then you'll get like little meditations like the beginning of of one of the uh driving sections what is that feeling when you're driving away from people and they recede on the plane till you see their specks dispersing it's the two huge world vaulting us and it's goodbye but we lean forward to the next crazy venture beneath the skies and like you can take that out and just have that be like a little koan about leaving people but in con- it also works in context as like a kickoff to the next part of a journey. Um, okay. So stuff like that. And that is, those two are the least wild and crazy, I would say. There are some sections where, there's one section where they are just like high from not having enough food. Where Sal has like a vision about God and what his place <laughs> in the universe Oh, and I no. usually, One I yeah, I usually have uh, trouble kind of reconciling myself <laughs> with those <laughs> passages in books. Um, I'm not one to usually experience the world that way, but I think for it, for this generation of writers, it certainly spoke to their experience. Um, and then the, the I'll I'll just close on like when I talked about the Columbus thing earlier, there is a sense of dissatisfaction with the traditional like i guess maybe the burgeoning like 50s man archetype like white male archetype that what these do you mean? so like i don't think that sal sal does not want to be like a dad from leave it to beaver right or if he does he doesn't want to admit it to himself yet sure um mm-hmm. and some of that is tied to this like recognition of 
the character that struggle gives to other people or other peoples. Um, so there's a section where he is, um, I think he's in San Francisco, uh, or just taught reminiscing about San Francisco. Yeah. He's in Denver thinking about San Francisco. He says, I wished I were a Denver Mexican, um, anything, but what I was so drearily a white man disillusioned. All my wife, all my life, I'd had white ambitions. That was why I had abandoned a good woman like Terry in the San Joaquin Valley. I passed the dark porches of Mexican and Negro homes. Soft voices were there. Occasionally, the dusky knee of some mysterious sensual gal and dark faces of the men behind Rose Arbors. Uh, he goes on from there. And it's like, it is this weird fascination with... It's not weird. I get. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it's, it. I, it. I think. I think I know what you're. Yeah. You're getting at. It's like. Uh, it's. You're kind. Kind of yearning to be like quote unquote interesting. Yes. Almost. It's exoticism. Like, it's exoticism. Yeah. Yeah. Like you are. You are a white man, and the world caters to you, and you're unsatisfied with it, or something. And that's kind. Of, yeah. And but but isn't that sort of boring? in a way i don't know it's i agree that it's hard to get at what he's what he's thinking about but i think i understand what you mean yeah and i don't inherently want to judge it negatively except for maybe some language that pulls your ear because it... well and i think it's it's the kind of thing i think the thing to criticize about it right is that you have the freedom to think yes. of that as exotic as, and interesting yes, because yes, you yes. don't have to like live in it and and understand what it what it is to like not be able to go back to your life as a catered to white man. Yes, yes, you're right. No, sense. that's exactly right. Um, even though it's born out of a like what might be a pure interest and respect for a culture other than yours, it then kind of crosses a line into mm -hmm. a, a lack of or uh, a, an unsatisfying examination of privilege. Let's say, and and all of that language is also kind of woven into the way that he talks about jazz and how the musicians, you know, black musicians have a different soul and feeling for it. And that's not necessarily untrue. It's just like, yeah, as you said, he doesn't quite wrestle with, well, but I still get to go back and be white. Um, yeah. Like it, isn't it nice to have the freedom to think of somebody else's identity as like a vacation or like, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, I don't know. And that's that's a lot of what the Mexico stuff is. It's like what how can I take an identity vacation? Um and that that does feel weird. Um and maybe but I don't know, for the time it could have been, you know, a stepping stone to where we are um in terms of, you know, interest in different cultures today. So like maybe it was it didn't read as such to other to people in the well, to I guess the gener the people reading this book who really loved it, let's say. <laughs> sure. Um, and there's a lot of like ear pulling language in terms of how it discusses gay people in the book, which is perhaps surprising given the relationships that we know were there. But that could also be Kerouac like struggling with it and kind of maybe asserting um, his, some behaviors and beliefs to kind of keep that at arm's length i'm not sure i don't want to diagnose him but there's some scholarship okay. on it that people should mm -hmm. look into um any other questions andrew anywhere you want to take a road trip to where i don't hmm. there was after college some of our friends like three of our friends got in a car and just drove from 
Ohio to like the West Coast yes. over the course of multiple weeks. And I'm not sure if I would have necessarily enjoyed that whole thing, <laughs> but I really like the idea of it, you know, just like deciding, okay, I am, I am unencumbered or I am unencumbering myself and yeah. I'm just going to go and I'm going to see stuff and the trip is going to be part of the point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Instead of, cause when I travel, it's overwhelmingly to get to whatever the destination is and Same. do stuff there and then get back to home after. Yeah, the, the closest analog for me is when I've gone to cities without a plan and just kind of walk around. And that does happen in this book too, um, where you just go somewhere and you're like, wonder what I'll see. Hope it's cool. Um, <laughs> but I've never done that for an extended period with a car where it's like, well, let me just hit this road and then we'll just stop for well, whatever just, reason. I'm too high strung to, <laughs> to be good at that i think in a lot of ways uh, like i think part of the reason i haven't done it is because i know i would i am ill suited to sure, it I guess. that's fair um the the book was written you know 20 years after route 66 was completed so there is i think still a newness to this openness that you could like traverse america this way um mm-hmm. and like just be free and out there um which, you know, I don't know. I would like a train to go that way. More trains, please. I write. I really on the train is a book I could use here in twenty nineteen. Yeah, I would be. There are a couple times when I've considered taking like a train to some, like an Amtrak or something, to somewhere instead of a plane, like for a couple days. Like when we went to New Orleans in the in the spring this yes, year. Yes, we like almost training it. Yeah. As a pre-baby thing, I thought about training and then didn't. Sure, sure. Um, I do love trains. Let's go get on a train. I like trains because you can like nap and do other stuff. Like you don't have to, if I'm driving the whole time, like my back hurts and I run out of podcasts and it's, you know, it can, <laughs> it can be bad. But a train is just like, I'm at home on the couch, but I'm also moving. I can look out the window and stuff's out there. Yeah. I love trains. Trains are good. Let's go get on a train. This podcast is over. We have to go catch a train. Yeah, make more trains, society. Um, send us in your thoughts on the Beat Generation. Um, if you like this yeah, book. cool cats. You all, you hep cats out there. We'll, we'll read all your thoughts on the Beat Generation. It'll be a real gas. <laughs> God, I would love to, to. I would love to hear more about why people uh, love this book. This was a Patreon recommendation from Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Not you, Andrew. not me. It was another one. Um, and you can hit us up on so email us overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up social at facebook.com slash overduepod, twitter.com slash overduepod. Thanks to Stephanie, Chelsea, M's, Amber, Haley, Andrea, Bree, Victoria, Christian, Sarah, Shelley, Catherine, and many more for reaching out in the past few weeks since we last recorded an episode. Um, Andrew, if they want more information, where should they go? Overduepodcast.com is our website. You can find links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed, a link to our Patreon project. That's patreon.com slash overduepod. And a link to our new listener page, which is where we have some episodes that you can start with if you don't just want to find a book that you've already read and start there. We do need to, we need to update that. The last episode on there is 300. Oh boy. Yeah. We got to update that. And we've done 86 other ones yep. since then. Whoops. So, whoops. So well, um, next week, what are, what are we doing next week? We're doing uh cuckoo's nest. Yeah. Cuckoo's nest with our, f- one flew over the cuckoo's nest with our friends from the New York public libraries. Librarian is in podcast. Uh, and then when you're at the end of the month, Andrew, what are you talking about? 
uh, The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Woo. I'm like a third of the way through it now. I'm having complicated feelings about it. I had complicated feelings about this one. It's a yeah. it's a month for complicated feelings. It's a month for complicated feelings. All right, Daddy-O, let's beat gravel. Until we see you next week, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. Every 30 seconds, a pulse emanates to let you know that you should switch to a different quadrant of your mouth. So you're tired from a day of driving or being in a plane or whatever. Can you do a road trip in the sky? I'm not sure. Um, But the toothbrush is good. Okay, you got it. You got it. You got it. You can do it. Okay.